Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings, listeners. That was a snippet of Haydn's Derbyshire March Number no. 2, and I am the guy whose ancestors took the name of the English county for whose cavalry regiment Haydn composed the march. Yes, this is your preferentially genial host, John Derbyshire, with some fragments of the week's news. The news this week has been more upbeat than usual. I mean, there's been more in it to bring a smile to the face of a national conservative, especially one with a focus on immigration and demographics. No prizes for guessing the topic of my opening segment this week. Here at vdare.com, we've had some sport over the years with the expression, which was originally coined by economists, the expression, revealed preference. The general idea of revealed preference is that people's beliefs, desires and intentions are best judged not by what they say, but by what they do. Millions of third worlders in recent years have migrated to the white first world in both hemispheres, from South and Central America to the USA, and from Africa and Islamia to Western Europe. They have done so in willful defiance of laws and regulations in the destination countries. Often they have paid their life savings to do so and risked danger and disappointment. Among those millions, there must be many who, if questioned, would repeat the cant condemnations of white supremacy and colonialism that are the common currency of the media and educational establishments all over the globe. Yet there they are, in the throng, facing the costs and the risks to move to nations created and maintained by white people, some of those nations trailing long histories of colonialism. To live in such nations is their revealed preference, whatever they may have said. The revealed preference of the migrants has a mirror image in the receiving nations. In the populations of those nations, our nations, there are many who, if questioned, would express sympathy and support for those entering our countries illegally. Let them come, they say. No human being is illegal. This week we have been seeing the revealed preference of those people, or at least some of them, and it's been very sweet to see. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida flew 50 illegal aliens to the ruling class enclave Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Outrage has ensued with much bleating about 
playing politics with human beings, using them as props. Those words were actually Joe Biden's, speaking on Thursday. I anticipate a new genre of virtue-signalling suburban lawn signs saying, No human being is a prop. That is, of course, naked hypocrisy. Why have first world ruling classes encouraged and abetted mass illegal immigration? Why, to stick it to their own working and middle classes, of course. That's why. To stick it to the bitter clingers, the deplorables, the semi-fascists, whom they loathe and despise and want to replace. Illegal aliens being used as props for political purposes? See how you like it, Joe. Governor DeSantis's move was a supercharged version of what Governors Greg Abbott of Texas and Doug Ducey of Arizona have been doing to our so-called sanctuary cities. Those governors have been busing illegal aliens to New York, Chicago and Washington, D.C. to shrieks of outrage from the mayors of those cities. Thursday morning, two busloads of illegals were dropped off outside the U.S. Naval Observatory in D.C., the official residence of Vice President Kamala Harris, courtesy of Greg Abbott. Fair enough, Harris wouldn't go to the southern border, so Governor Abbott brought the border to her. The observatory neighbourhood is the toniest district of our nation's capital. Fine, old, elegant townhouses and diplomatic missions. So I would guess there is some revealed preference being revealed in the clubs and drawing rooms there. But so far I haven't seen any residents interviewed. I like the growing audacity of these southern governors. And I love the revealed preference on display here. Over in the other major part of the white first world, which is to say Europe, the dynamic is somewhat different. Immigration scofflaws who arrive in southern Europe don't need buses and planes chartered by politicians to take them north. The north is where they want to be. For one thing, that's where relatives and friends from their home countries mostly are. Millions of them now. For another, the lush, soft, woke welfare states of Northern Europe are more hospitable than Spain Italy and Greece. Resistance to the demographic replacement is stirring in Northern Europe, though. Sweden, the beating heart of white ethno-masochism, had a general election on Sunday. The result was a defeat for the ruling Social Democrats, 
and a narrow win for a coalition of more conservative parties. Included in that coalition were the Sweden Democrats, described by the Washington Post as, quote, a party founded in 1988 by ultra-nationalist extremists and neo-Nazis, end quote. I have not sufficient acquaintance with Swedish politics to tell you whether that description is a fair one. Did Sweden Democrats start out wearing jackboots and giving their party leader straight-arm salutes? Did their original policy platform call for euthanasia of the mentally retarded and an invasion of Poland? I have no idea. Whatever, the Sweden Democrats are plainly a nationalist party. Party leader Jimmy Ackerson wrote Wednesday on Facebook, quote, Now we will get order in Sweden. It is time to start rebuilding security, prosperity and cohesion. It's time to put Sweden first. End quote. The references to order and security there point to the swelling lawlessness in Sweden's cities, all driven by high levels of immigration from the Balkans and the Middle East. It's good that this nationalist party has a share in Sweden's new ruling coalition. I note, though, that their share of the total vote was only around 20%. That zone, 20 to 25%, was for years the ceiling for the AFD party, Germany's equivalent of the Sweden Democrats. The AFD have struggled to break through it, but with only occasional and local success. So, we're still waiting for a nationalist party in Western Europe to win a big, robust electoral majority. We may see that next weekend, when Italy goes to the polls on September 25th. Polls tell us that the favourite to be Italy's next Prime Minister is 45-year-old Giorgia Meloni, leader of the Brothers of Italy party. Quote from her back in June. Yes to the natural family. No to the LGBT lobbies. No to the violence of Islam. Yes to safer borders. No to mass immigration. Yes, to work for our people. No, to major international finance. End quote. As a political party platform, that's not bad. It's one that Americans could only dream of. 
The next best thing to a straightforward victory for some nationalist party in Europe would be for one of the big, old, dominating social democratic parties to steal some of the nationalists' clothes. That seems to be happening in Denmark. The prime minister of that country is 44-year-old Mette Frederiksen of the, yes, Social Democratic Party. Here's a thing that she said last month, quote, Unfortunately, the truth is that immigration policy is closely linked to crime and that there is too large a group that is not part of Denmark. At the same time, we are seeing a crime picture that is changing, which, in my eyes, is one of Denmark's biggest challenges of all, because being unsafe is a huge loss of freedom. End quote. Oh, here's another thing she said. This one at the opening of Parliament last October. Quote, Every fifth young man with a non-Western background born in 1997 had broken the law before turning 21. It's not everyone, but there are too many young men who take the freedom of others, steal children's futures, intimidate prison guards, and leave behind a long trail of insecurity. It has been going on for too many years. Girls who are called derogatory names because they are Danish or girls who are subjected to social control because they have become too Danish. A sausage cart in Brønsjøy that is attacked with firecrackers because it sells pork. End quote. That's all coming from the leader of a European Social Democratic Party. The equivalent of our own... Democratic Party. Incredible. Denmark's Social Democrats aren't stopping at words, though. Last year, this same government passed a law saying that foreigners applying for asylum in Denmark could be made to wait in a third country. Now we have just been told that Denmark has signed a third country agreement with Rwanda in South Central Africa. That's the same deal the British government struck, also with Rwanda. But that deal was then scotched by the European Court of Human Rights, which, for reasons I don't understand, apparently still has authority in Britain even after Brexit. Denmark is in the EU, so perhaps that same court will stop their Rwanda plan. Possibly Prime Minister Frederiksen is hoping that will happen, and she's just playing four-dimensional chess to appease Denmark's nationalists. I don't know. 
If her words are empty, though, they're still pretty good words. And there are plenty of nationalists in Denmark who will like them. In a 2019 poll, 31% of Danish respondents said that immigration brings no benefits, only harms. The year before that, 65% of respondents to a different poll said Denmark should not take in any more migrants, legal or illegal. Sweden, Italy, Denmark, Europe is waking up. When will America? I have several times opined that the most astonishing, most incredible statistic of our age is that the USA admitted more Muslims for settlement in the 15 years after 9-11 than it did in the 15 years before. Well, we're now 21 years on from 9-11 and Muslims are firmly and increasingly embedded in our politics and all on the same side. Keith Ellison was elected to Congress by the nice people of Minnesota back in 2006. He's currently the Attorney General of that state. He was responsible for the savage prosecutorial assault on Officer Derek Chauvin and three other cops who were on the scene when junkie street hooligan George Floyd died under police restraint in 2020. And then there are representatives Ilhan Omar, also of Minnesota, and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. Less well-known is Abdullah Hamoud, elected mayor of Dearborn, Michigan last November, and formerly a member of Michigan's House of Representatives. Then there is Dekar Dalak, mayor of South Portland, Maine. South Portland is a city that is just, believe it or not, south of Portland. Mayor Dalak is, like Representative Omar, Somalian by birth. She has ambitions to get herself elected to Maine's own House of Representatives. If she pulls that off, she will almost certainly join Mana Abdi, another Somali gal, who is standing for election to that house against no opposition at all. Ellison, Omar, Tlaib, Hamoud, Dalak, Abdi. That's six Muslims I just named. By birth, they break as three Somalis, one Palestinian, and two Americans. Every single one belongs to the Democratic Party. The three who have any significant track record, Ellison, Omar and Tlaib, are way out on the woke left of that party. 
Writing in Life magazine back in 1949, the English novelist Evelyn Waugh spoke of the Irish coming to America, where, quote, they have settled in their millions, bringing with them all their ancient grudges and the melancholy of the bogs. End quote. I think that's an ignorant slander on the Irish, with whom I have had considerable acquaintance, both in Ireland and abroad. Melancholy? I've found Irish people more cheerful than the human average. That phrase, carrying everywhere with him his ancient rancor, is certainly applicable to Muslims, though. In the case of Somalis, like Omar, Dalak and Abdi, the rancor is double strength. The rancor of religion and also of race. We have been fools to admit Muslims to the USA in such numbers, and fools twice over to admit Somalis. Here's a thing I wrote 11 years ago. Quote from myself. Now look, any population has a lot of variation, and I have no doubt there are many law-abiding and industrious Somalis. When you take in 4,000 or 16,000 or 100,000, though, the law of averages is going to kick in, as, of course, it kicks in unmistakably in Somalia itself. Human capital-wise, the Somali averages are simply terrible. Things are rough in Somalia. Chronic civil war, recurrent famine, disease, piracy. Private persons who are distressed by the plight of the Somalis should by no means be discouraged from doing anything they can think of to relieve the distress over there. The reason nations have governments, though, is to protect and advance the interests of their own citizens. How the interests of Americans, Britons, Canadians, Australians and New Zealanders have been advanced by having thousands of Somalis settled among them is not clear to me. Perhaps the State Department could send someone round to explain. End quote. Eh, why don't people listen? The philosophy of American progressives has now advanced to the point of holding that blacks should not be arrested for anything at all short of homicide, and should only be arrested then if there is clear video evidence of the event. That is the deep background to this week's news that Oberlin College in Ohio will not attempt any further appeals against a ruling that they had libelled Gibson's, that's a local bakery, 
now in the fifth generation of ownership by the Gibson family. All this sprang from an incident back in 2016. A young black shoplifter, challenged by the white store clerk, assaulted the clerk and ran out with the goods he'd stolen, assaulting the store owner as he ran. The clerk caught and tried to hold the shoplifter, but two young black women, friends of the shoplifter, piled on the clerk. He was down on the sidewalk being punched and kicked when cops arrived. All three of the blacks here were students at Oberlin. They were arrested and charged with assault and robbery. Oberlin College, students and faculty both, went collectively nuts. There were huge repeated protests by the students and boycotts of the store, boycotts in which members of the college faculty participated. The Dean of Students printed up and handed out a stack of flyers saying the bakery had a long history of racial profiling. Gibsons had indeed suffered a lot of shoplifting, but police records showed that of the 40 shoplifters arrested, 32 were white, 6 were black and 2 were Asian. That's more or less precisely the racial demographics of the town. Six out of 40 is 15%. Just hold that number in your mind for a moment. 15% black. That is the percentage of blacks among shoplifters and also the percentage of blacks in the town of Oberlin. I'll admit to having been surprised when I read that. In my 40-odd years living in the USA... I've had several conversations with people who own or work in retail stores. When the subject of shopliftings come up, I have heard many, many times that it's a disproportionately black thing. The rise of smartphone video, I think, has confirmed that. It may, of course, be that the town's store owners are more reluctant to challenge black shoplifters precisely for fear of accusations of racism. Or perhaps, having seen the same video clips you and I have seen, just from fear of black violence. I don't know. To confound the issue... The Legal Insurrection website turned up a 2017 article in an Oberlin College student publication about the college's, quote, culture of theft, end quote. According to the article, 82.5% of arrests for shoplifting in the town of Oberlin overall are of students and shoplifting levels drop dramatically in the college vacations. With 40 arrests altogether, 
and 82.5% of 40 being 33. If students and non-students are equally likely to shoplift, there were 33 student shoplifters and only 7 non-students. The student body at Oberlin College is just 6% black. 6% of 33 is 2, so on a strictly proportional basis, 2 of those blacks arrested for shoplifting out of the total 6 should be black Oberlin College students. The expected number of black non-student shoplifters would then be 4. 6 minus 2. However, with blacks at 15% of Oberlin Town, there being seven non-student shoplifters, and 15% of seven being one, the expected number of black non-students should be one. So, why is it four? Sorry, that's too much arithmetic. I got carried away there. I will leave you to juggle with the numbers. The owners of Gibsons sued the college in 2017. They said they had been libelled and their business had been harmed. A jury eventually, in June of 2019, a jury awarded them $44 million in compensatory and punitive damages. That was later reduced to $25 million to comply with a state cap on punitive damages. Oberlin College, of course, appealed. The appeal was turned down and the court unanimously upheld the $25 million judgment against the school. The Court of Appeals in Akron also added a $6.3 million payment by the college for the bakery's legal fees. Total, with accumulated interest charges, $36.59 million. Last week, Oberlin College finally agreed to pay the bakery the entire amount. This is a victory for good sense and a big loss for progressives. That it will cause them to rethink their assumptions, I seriously doubt. But I'm cheering anyway. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. My acronym of the week is ELF. E-L-F. ELF. That stands for... Educated Liberal Female I've borrowed it from a column by Jack Cashill over at American Thinker, September 9th. Says Jack, quote, These are the women who will proudly vote Democrat regardless of soaring inflation, rising gas prices, rampant crime in the streets, the unchecked flood of illegal aliens and oppressive Covid policies that have irreparably damaged all children, the poor most notably. End quote. 
Jack then goes into some very plausible analysis of elf psychology and the factors that shape it. College attendance, late marriage, risk avoidance and others. I think he's on to something. Before I can wholeheartedly embrace the ELF acronym, though, I would like to get a ruling on the proper plural form. Should I say ELFs, as Jack does, or would ELVES be more grammatical? Similarly with the adjectival form. Is it ELFISH or ELVEN? All advice gratefully received. Item. Faithful readers of my monthly diary will know that I am a martyr to small biting insects. You may therefore imagine the smile on my face when reading this headline at Breitbart, September 15th. Headline. China seeks to legislate Extinction of Mosquitoes Reading down into the story, I see that this was only a proposal put before China's fake parliament, the National People's Congress. The proposal was, Breitbart tells us, quote, swatted down, end quote, by China's National Health Commission, whoever they are. The commission declared that, quote, research on innovative mosquito control techniques remains relatively weak, end quote. That sounds feeble to me. I suspect that the real reason for the swap down was the Chaikom's memory of the Chu Hai campaign of the late 1950s. Chu Hai means eliminate four pests. The four pests to be eliminated were rats, mosquitoes, flies and common sparrows. Sparrows were included there because they ate wheat when it was growing. I don't know how the rats, mosquitoes and flies fared, but the sparrows took a real beating. Quote from a relevant website. Millions of people organised themselves into groups to kill sparrows or to wear them out by harassing them by loudly hitting pots and pans. The campaign was a success and almost led to the extinction of the bird in the country. All the people were mobilised, including young, old people, women and children. End quote. Only after two years of this did the Chaikoms notice that the sparrows did not only eat wheat... They also ate a lot of insects that were harmful to wheat and to other crops. Locusts, for example. The commies hurriedly replaced sparrows by bedbugs in the propaganda, but it was too late. 
The extinction of the sparrows was one factor in the great Mao famine that saw off tens of millions of Chinese people in 1959 to 61. Moral of the story? Don't mess with the animal food chain unless you really, really know what you're doing. Secondary moral, highly pertinent to today's USA, don't let communists take over your country. Item. A story here from the animal kingdom. Australia has suffered its first fatal kangaroo attack for 86 years. Yes, 77-year-old Peter Eads, who had been keeping a wild kangaroo as a pet, was found with serious injuries by a family member on Sunday afternoon. Police had to shoot the kangaroo to get close to Mr Eads, but by that time the poor man had died. Reading that left me wondering how exactly a kangaroo kills you. Do those skinny little arms have razor-sharp claws or what? Later on in the story, though, I read of a woman who, back in April, was, quote, kicked to the ground and stomped on while she was playing golf, end quote. So I guess those big, powerful legs do the trick. Kangaroos famously jump, and if you mess with one, he'll jump you to death. Item. With Queen Elizabeth's state funeral coming up on Monday, and the British news websites still full of related events, it would be remiss of me not to pass comment. A story that particularly caught my eye was this one at the BBC website, September 14th. Headline. Queen Elizabeth II. Hong Kong's grief sends message to Beijing. In last week's podcast, I had a segment about the Great Fire of Smyrna a hundred years ago. In that segment, I said this, quote, Smyrna was one of those multi-ethnic cosmopolises, like Alexandria 500 miles to the south before NASA took over Egypt, or Hong Kong under British colonial rule or Beirut before the civil wars. The inhabitants gave all their energies to commerce, hoping the politicians of the world would leave them alone. They wouldn't, of course. End quote. No, of course they wouldn't. These big, bustling, cosmopolitan, mercantile cities hum along happily for a few decades, but then the icy hand of politics takes over and it all ends in tears. Hong Kong is in the tears stage right now, following the Chai Com takeover. They are cherishing the memory 
of the freedom that they enjoyed under British rule, and they're taking Elizabeth as a symbol of all that. I lived in Hong Kong myself 50 years ago, when it was free, and I cherish fond memories. I still have Hong Kong friends, but they have all got out, thank God. I wish them well with all my heart. That's it, ladies and gents. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are making appropriate observances for Hispanic Heritage Month, which, as I'm sure you know, began on Thursday. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Here's Gracie to sing us out.